0: Welcome to Leadership Web, a podcast series from the University of Arkansas that exposes listeners to a wide range of perspectives on leadership. Through interviews with current leaders, Leadership Web strives to provide tools for you to either begin building your own or continue improving your existing leadership framework. We believe that there is no one single path to successful leadership, but that we can all learn from each other on our own leadership journeys. Today we are joined by Chris McCoy, Vice Chancellor for Finance and Administration at the University of Arkansas. His top five values are service, leadership, collaboration, creativity, and community.
1: Today, Dean John English and I are interviewing Chris McCoy, the Chief Financial Officer of the University of Arkansas. Chris, one thing I know about you is that you're a student of leadership. Yes. Of course, John English was the chair of the search committee when we hired you to be our Chief Information Officer. And I was on the search committee for you when we hired you as Chief Financial Officer. In both cases, your interest and in your study of leadership has really come through. A few things I want to explore with you is, one, how did you get interested in leadership? Because we know you come from an IT background. I'm, I'm joking. Yeah. <laughs> and two, who is your favorite leadership
2: author or authors? So when did I get interested in leadership? This it's sort of a long story, but it dates back into the 1980s and the mid-90s, really. At the time I was working at Iowa State University, and we hired a new dean. I was in the College of Engineering, and Jim Melsa was hired as the Dean of Engineering. And Jim came in from industry. He was a vice president for strategic planning at one of the telcos based in Chicago and he brought with him this mindset of strategic thought and one of the books that he had many of his leadership team read and I was not a direct member of his leadership team at the time was The Goal by Ellie Goldratt I see by the by the reactions in your face that you understand what this John is and I have both read The Goal and it's a phenomenal introduction to sort of critical strategic thinking and there's some leadership elements in there as well. And so I consumed that book and then I went from the goal to the critical chain to it's not luck, and, you know all of the different gold Rat books. It opened my eyes to strategic thinking overall. And then somewhere along the way, someone suggested that I look at the 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, the John Maxwell book, which is one of my favorite books. And when I read that, it was sort of like I was hooked. That got me so interested in leadership, and from there, I led multiple sessions with my team in terms of leadership development. We actually went through that book several times, and then one of the things that I did is anytime we had a leader come into the College of Engineering, I arranged for my leadership development team, this team that was studying leadership, to have lunch. So a vice president of Boeing or a CEO of this company or, or that company, and we just sort of hooked on to them and we asked them leadership questions overall. And so that started this long trail for me of learning leadership. Now, because of that book, The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, I was hooked also on John Maxwell. And so I have an extensive collection of Maxwell books overall. I like the fact that they're practical that they align with our everyday encounters with leadership and they help expose lots of broad concepts of leadership. It's not overly academic and it's not it's not overly practical, if you will, so it's that, it's that right balance for me.
1: You know, the University of Arkansas hired you as the chief information officer and now you're the chief financial officer. That's an unusual move And I think one of the reasons is because you've been so successful. You came in as the chief information officer, and you made lots of positive changes in many, many ways. So you not only understand leadership, but you can practice it. What is leadership?
2: Yeah. So this is a question that I'm asked a lot, and I ponder a lot. I think if you you boil it down and you ask, what's the essence of leadership? I think I'm forced to answer, it's trust. People can be influenced in a a number of different ways. And Maxwell will say, the true measure of leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. That's one of his early chapters in his 21 Laws book. But if I think about what's the basis of that, it comes out to be trust. Because people can lead or command in multiple ways. You think about politics, it's about trading favors. There's a sort of this feeling within that of manipulation within politics. You think about military leadership, and there's a there's an element of fear that's involved with that. When you think about true, authentic leadership, for me, it's about trust. And in order to have trust, you have to build positive relationships with people. And you have to get across the point that you really care about their success and a shared success. And not you're not trying to get something out of it. I would suggest that all other types of leadership, other than true authentic leadership, it's about the outcome. Authentic leadership is about the journey. So you think about politics, and, you, and you'll say the end justifies the means. You think about military, and it's about winning the war, winning the battle. It's not about how you engage the battle, but when you think about true authentic leadership, it's about how you carry people along in the journey how you walk beside them, the types of decisions that you make along the way, and it's about all of the stops along the way to the shared end, the shared goal. And I think
3: that's what separates true leadership overall. Kind of building on that, Chris, I have a question, and uh, it really stems back from the time when I was chairing the search. And literally, we're on a video conference call, and I won't go into details of that, other than whenever I got off that video conference call, I said to myself, I'd like to have Chris as my friend, <laughs> that I want a relationship.
2: And the and, wish came true. <laughs> and and then three
3: years later, we're very close friends. And so yeah. I think I, most everyone knows that. Tell me how that happened. What's that spark? But, but how does that spark occur?
2: Well, part of it is based on who I am. Okay. All right, so you have to understand who I am, I think, to answer that a little bit. I lived in about 18 different places before I graduated high school. So I moved around a lot. Now everybody will ask, well, you were, were you a military child? What was the deal? Well, I was the son of a, uh, of a manager in retail. And so we moved every couple of years as my dad was relocated across the whole Midwest. But along with that, I had to learn to make friends. Everywhere I went, right, if I wanted to have friends, I had to learn to make friends. And part of that is understanding who people are and understanding, you know, that person not just always self because you're walking into their world everywhere you go. And if you don't understand their world, how do you fit in? Part of it is also, quite frankly, my faith. That's a component of what drives who I am. And so for me, what I'm always trying to do is understand where people are at, where they're, what their needs are, what's happening in their lives, what their goals are overall, and then how do I fit in? I've always seen myself from a service perspective. IT is always about service. In In the university environment IT is an organization that serves the colleges because that's where the students are, that's where the research is, and that's essentially where the outreach comes from. So my job has always been how do I make those things happen? So I, I have built over the years this understanding that I have to come at it from the perspective of knowing who you are, what your needs are in order to make you successful. And that's why for me, I think why leadership became so important for me is because the principles of leadership and especially authentic leadership have to do with making sure that somebody else is successful.
1: Service is also one of the things that you listed as one of your values how we respond to the people we serve is important and the foundation for our credibility. They have to know that we care about their success before they will follow us. So one of your values links directly to leadership and I actually noticed that all of your values link directly to leadership.
2: They explain really my understanding of leadership is maybe a better way to say it. And you'll note there's actually an order to how I list them. So they're not randomly listed. So the first point is is that when I think about where leadership begins, it's in understanding the people that you serve. That's the customer service component. If you don't understand the people that you serve, then nothing else really matters because there's no one to influence. So for me, that's the starting point. Understand what the needs are of people, understand what they're trying to achieve, and then you can go from there. And then each successive value builds along that overall. And so the link in the chain. So the first one is customer service, right? So then there's the leadership. I list leadership as a principle or a value of leadership. Well, how does that make sense, right? Well, let's dig a little deeper into that. I see the world in terms of this dichotomy of leadership versus management. Leadership is about taking people where they haven't been or taking people to a better place. Management is really about trying to keep things where they are and making them better. One is about effectiveness and the other is about efficiency overall. And so for me, I see the world in a leadership paradigm, which means that when I'm looking at your needs or when I'm looking at the needs of the institution, I'm thinking about where we're going, not about keeping us where we're at. Okay, so that's why I look at leadership. And you could probably Uh, substitute vision or forward thinking for leadership. There's so many different aspects to that, but that's why I list leadership. Collaboration and teamwork, I believe that when we're working on solving problems, that we actually need to work with people who complement us. And this is where actually my understanding of diversity and inclusion comes in, because I like to have people from multiple different perspectives solving the problem and working together. And so for me, it's about having people from different dimensions participate to, for the outcome, because ideas oftentimes come from people who are outsiders. Paradigm shifts happen because outsiders see things differently. They're not constrained by the rules that we have in place. Creativity and innovation, for me, then, is what comes next. You, you have a problem, how do you solve it? You, you're creative, you think outside the box. You, you think outside the rules. And then, of course, the, the last thing is on is community. You know, this differs from teamwork in that the teamwork is a small group of people working together. But for me, it's about building the community of people overall within the organization, creating ways where we can, we can begin to align. And this is that final thought of really we're interdependent. We're, we're not independent, we're not dependent, we're interdependent together. And if we can all begin to think like we're interdependent, we actually have true community overall. So that's the progression of thought for me as I think through this.
3: Chris, I, in, in the context of the community piece, you know, we work and live in an environment that you, know, you put together 10 people in the room, one to 10 of them may be smarter than you. I mean, and that's just reality. Mm -hmm. Working at higher ed, there are tremendous intellectuals that we work around every day. I mean, I'm I'm intrigued with this idea of community. How important is this? What, What kind of opportunity do we have before us in a university when we have this level of raw and developed intelligence?
2: So I I would suggest first that whenever I walk into a room, I assume I'm not the smartest person in the room. I'm actually, (laughs) that everybody else in the room is smarter than me. And not just because we're in higher ed, but for me, that would be normal anytime I walk into any room. And part of that is about caring for people and loving people overall, right? I've got to understand that they're very different. And so when I think about community overall, going back to what you're saying, what about the smart people in higher ed? It's important that we understand that the ideas that that we have as a community are what allow us to succeed overall. And we can either work together within a community, there can be cooperation or there can be competition. And there's a spectrum. I don't want to paint this as black and white, but there's a spectrum. And the closer we get towards cooperation, the more likely we are to be successful. The more we focus on competition, the more likely it is to impede our mm-hmm. success as an institution overall. So I like to think about us as, we're a community working towards cooperation together overall to, to be successful. We may have competing values, we may have competing ideas, but that doesn't mean that we have to be totally exclusive. Cooperation assumes that we can, we can value a spectrum of ideas, a spectrum of thoughts, a spectrum of solutions. And that's one of the things, you know, we talk about this idea of centralization versus decentralization. And we paint it as this dichotomy. I don't see it as a dichotomy. I actually see this this spectrum of possibilities. And for me, I don't actually even see it as centralized or decentralized. I see it as community, which is all of us working together with all of those things taking place within the community overall. And we find the opportunities within the community that allow us to be successful as an organization. Those are the ones we focus on. Because we've identified those, we have the courage to identify those, and those that are impeding us, we push aside.
1: You were CIO for three years, right?
2: CIO here for three years at Arkansas, yes.
1: And you made a lot of change in a short period of time. And I don't know the details of what you did. Everyone I've talked to seems to notice the improvements you brought about. and you talk about service, knowing what's important. You're you're, you're looking at it from a servant leadership kind of perspective, but sometimes when you come into an organization, you have people that don't seem to really want to participate or make the organization better. How do you deal with that? That's a
2: great question and uh, every organization is different. When I stepped into the role here, as you know, there was a big division between the centralized IT and the, this, the IT distributed out throughout the rest of the campus, which is about roughly 50-50 or 60-40, depending upon how you split it up. So there's a lot of people spread across campus, and it was a pretty big division. The way I approached it, I did a couple of things. The, the first thing is I knew I had to heal that, that gap. That was the first thing that I recognized. And by the way, this isn't any different than any other major institution, right? They always have this split between central and decentral, and there's there's a certain amount of tension between those two. But I always said if I ever got into this position, I would know exactly what to do. And what I did was, the first week I was on the job, I took the centralized leadership for an overnight retreat. We did a surfacing of all of the issues that they had, especially about distributed, and anything else. And we talked through a whole process and and a process that I had used in the past. The second week, I took the distributed leadership for an overnight retreat. We did the exact same agenda. And then week four, we brought the two teams together and we had them share what, what their perspectives were. But the point was, was first, everybody needs an opportunity to express themselves and get it off their chest. They need to be able to communicate what their concerns are because if they're holding on to them, It's always in the back of their mind before they can start thinking about anything else. And so that process was to work them through airing their grievances and then dealing with them. So in that week four, when they came together and we started talking about these things, we had this big list of things that we knew we needed to have done in IT. And then we would start talking about how we were going to do it. And someone invariably, either central or decentral, would raise their hand and say, yeah, but what about, and they'd fill in the blank with some problem that pointed to the past, a past practice, or what they thought it was a constraint. So I called a timeout, and I said, let's let's figure out all of these things that are getting in the way, and let's brainstorm those. And we came up with 17 things that everybody kept pointing to, and that was the yeah, but what about things, right? And we called those the rocks in the road, the things we kept tripping over. And so we formed these tiger teams to deal with these rocks in the road and clear the road and to say, all right, you tiger teams, and it was two members of Central and two members of Decentral on the tiger teams, intentionally one to one, two to two, whatever you wanna say. And they were empowered to solve the problem. Whatever it takes, solve the problem. They'll come to me. Don't go to John. Don't, don't go to the chancellor. Solve the problem so that when it's done, we come back and you say it's all resolved. We're no longer tripping over that issue. And it took us about two months, two to three months to solve those problems. And we could get to work on the major things that had to be done. And that's what led to the 26 other projects that we established as part of our Achieve IT initiative overall. But that process of working them through... Getting rid of the past that they were holding on to led them to focus on the 26 that they could then give a lot of energy to and move forward with. And I'll tell you, it, it totally changed how people approached their work. We had distributed folks leading projects that two years before that Central would have said, No way am I going to have that person working on this thing. I mean, they're leading it, not just participating in the project. We had people from across campus working on these things. And the other thing that we did is to say, well, is of utmost importance. You want to be on any one of the projects? There it is. Jump on the committee, participate any way you want. You may not know the stuff, but you're welcome to participate. And it created such an open environment for people to participate. They felt like nobody had any hidden agendas, that nobody was trying to pull the wool over their eyes. So we tried to eliminate every barrier of participation and and success that we could. And of course some of the projects had to be linked together. We had to do certain ones before we could get to another one. And so as a team we tried to figure out the sequence for those 26 projects.
3: Can you share what maybe a couple of rocks
2: were like? So without getting into too much technical detail, it would be something like, well this particular system. The way that this particular thing was managed, Central managed it on their own without any advice or input from the college level folks. And the colleges were upset because it impeded what they needed to do to deliver services to a course or research or, or even just day to day operations. And so the question really was well, why does Central have to do that on their own? And the answer was. We didn't have to worry about that. There was no real reason because everybody was accountable to somebody at the institution. And if the issue was accountability, well, everybody had the same consequences. So what are we worried about? That was a very common thread throughout many of these rocks was really that there were these barriers that people put up to protect their jobs or protect what they thought was their centralized right or their decentralized right. You know, that's that's sort of the, the common example that was out
1: there. I know one thing you did that was really surprising to me, it shouldn't have been, but it was I think it was a great idea, you took all of your people who are used to working on solving small problems and you said to them, how can we help the university achieve the, their priorities? Would you mind talking about that a little
2: bit? Uh, I think what you're talking about is, is when we talked about the eight priorities. So. Early on, you know, as, the, as the eight guiding priorities for campus were being developed, people saw those as something that was really in the domain of the colleges, or the provost, or the administration. How does a service unit plug into these eight priorities? right? What we did is we began a fairly rigorous campaign of informing and educating people. So, you know, I did the CIO chat, which was a webinar every Tuesday noon to communicate to anybody on campus who wanted to tune in. Sometimes I just talked off the top of my head, sometimes I had a very specific agenda or a very specific presentation, but it was a way of being transparent. One of those in particular, I went through the eight guiding priorities in detail and I walked through and explained what they meant as best as I could, not only from what I understood as the campus perspective, but what I understood as my perspective in higher ed and how they applied. That was one of the things that we did. Another thing that we did is we took the eight priorities and we put it in every conference room. We put up these big posters that had the eight priorities. We put them in multiple hallways. We just made sure that people saw them in in every location. And then we started aligning our projects with the eight priorities. We started thinking in terms of, well, how can I move the needle on that? Are there things that I can do? So we tried to create projects out of that, but we also measured our existing work against those eight priorities. And if we thought that some of the work was not well aligned, we killed the project. We just simply said we're not expending dollars for that because it's anything that we do that's contrary or not aligned with the eight priorities is actually contrary to the success of the institution. And so that was a leadership decision by my team, my leadership team at the time, that we took to ensure that we were using resources more efficiently.
3: Kind of changing subjects a little bit, Chris. Mm-hmm. Um, you rolled in here and you'd begun working before at, the, at kind of the system level for a university in the upper Midwest. You came in and, and kind of stepped it up with it being CIO of a major flagship university. So you've made a transition to a larger job. And sometimes those transitions, as you move into the next level of responsibility, can be a bit mind boggling. And I suspect that moving into the CFO position, you're seeing some mind-boggling challenges before you, and not going into details what you yeah. see, because that's not the nature of what we're trying to find, but how do you juggle those things? How do you address you know, what you need to get on really quick? And maybe other things, Well, we'll maybe let that one ride, because you really don't know the job yet, but you're getting into it.
2: Yeah, it's a great question, John. So... The history of the institution here, that's important to understand a little bit of the backdrop for the institution. The institution has changed wildly over the last 15 years. Student population, degree of research, physical size, position within the the region and the state and so on. And this has been this sort of meteoric rise of the institution, which is absolutely phenomenal. When you think about it, the institution came from these roots where it was small enough that a lot of the work could be done through sort of uh, informal processes across the institution. And those informal processes were effective because they were based upon personalities and and specific people skills. Now as we grow bigger and as some of those people are retiring or leaving for greener pastures or whatever, we face this challenge of how do we sustain our success? And so throughout our institution, we have processes that are built upon these sort of informal channels, which also means that sometimes you can get things done through a phone call and a handshake and not a formal process where you can actually audit the process. And I don't mean audit as in the internal audit or legislative audit, but in terms of being able to ensure that steps were followed along the way and that it was completed, especially. And so what I'm finding is we're in a condition where we need to go back and we need to formalize many of those processes and some of those processes are such that we may not even need them they were required at one point we do certain things because that's the way we've always done it you all have heard the story of the you know cutting off the turkey legs when you when you put the turkey in the oven why do you do it that way because my My mother did it that way. Well, you ask your mother, why did your mother do it that way? Because your grandmother did it. You ask your grandmother why she did it and you find out, well, because the turkey wouldn't fit in the oven unless you cut the legs off, right? So you've lost the essence of what the issue is. And we're at that state where we have lots of processes where we don't know why we're doing it, but we do it because everybody's used to doing it. So we've got to back out of a lot of those things and formalize a lot of our work overall. But the other thing is, is that we have a lot of work to do really to think about keeping our administrative costs low as we continue to grow. It's a growing problem in in the U.S. amongst higher ed institutions where administrative burdens, administrative costs are rising faster than than the investment in academics and research. And we have an opportunity right now to reverse that trend. And, And so that's part of what I'm focusing on as well.
1: Being CIO, you were always trying to think of not just how to solve problems for us. You were trying to think, how can you make us more effective as administrators, faculty, and staff? And in doing so, you had to learn about all the new technologies that are out there. And I know in conversations with you, I've heard you talk about Everything from Internet of Things to blockchain to all kinds of things. And I would think there's not too many CFOs of universities (laughs) in the world that know about these concepts. How does your knowledge and experience in leading the information function of the university help you in a unique way in leading the financial
2: function of the university? That's a great question. Let's go back to the process side of the house. A lot of our processes are designed either through relationships or paper or phone calls and so on, and they result in frustration and delays and a you know, whole yeah. wide variety of issues. So I use my knowledge and understanding of the digitalization of business to think in terms of how we can take our processes and really convert them from what they've been into more of a digital form. That's the first big piece, I think, with all of this for me. And we have the opportunity as we go to new database systems for the campus to be able to review all of those processes that are part of the new database system. But we also can use that same opportunity to look at other related processes. And so institutional-wide, we can now do that. And so I bring that knowledge of, how things can work when i see a process i'm not just seeing the steps i'm seeing the technology that it takes to implement those steps and how we can plug that in to make it work better and i also think in terms of trade offs you know we talked about blockchain and and uh, iot and so on and internet of things is how you look at um, measuring, for example, the lights in your room and whether they should be on or not, and, and how much they're on, and how much you know, how your space is occupied, or what, what the heating or air conditioning should be like, and so on. And, or uh, you know, a thousand other potential sensors, including things like, is a student sitting in the classroom or not? Right? Through a simple sensor, one can do that pretty easily. So all of those things help us understand the flows of the business of what we do that affects the bottom line uh, of what we do as well. So, you know, I, I see the connection between those technologies and how we operate the way we do, on the one hand from an operational standpoint, but also from the perspective of generation of revenue through educational purposes or research purposes and so on. One
3: of the things we're facing as university is the uh, we're, we're moving into a new ERP system. Thank you. And uh, I have found this very intriguing to learn about your leadership and what's behind you, Chris. Mm -hmm. You know, and and I think as deans and senior leaders here on campus, we're bracing ourselves. Some of us, myself, for example, have never been down this path of what this is going to do to us, operationally, organizationally, Mm -hmm. frustrations that faculty and staff are going to feel with the new system. It's just change. What are some of the attributes you think that maybe we should be trying to drill down in our behavior as much as we can Mm -hmm. in view of what's about ready to happen so that we can help the people who we care for cope with it and realize the benefits we have in a new ERP system?
2: What's ERP? So ERP, that's the Enterprise Resource Planning. That's a title that we IT folks give to the core databases of any company in our company, in in higher ed, the three major components of the ERP are financial system, our HR system, and our student information system. And, And so, as I mentioned, these things are going to be changing, and the key word here is change. Now, we have a lot of people who have been using the current database system for years, decades actually. They're used to how it works, and now we're talking about changing when we introduce new technology in, in a classroom, or we introduce new technology uh, in a laboratory, wherever it is, there's change, change, change. Generally, IT people are faced with change management or change leadership, which is really a component of leadership. If it's approached right, you think about the other qualities I talked about with leadership. The component of helping people through change, it's, it's always that picture of the Sherpa helping someone climb Mount Everest. right? They're there to carry the load and ensure that the rest of of the party makes it to the summit. And so as a leader, when you're thinking about change, you've got to help people. You've got to carry the load. You've got to make sure that they're informed. You've got to make sure that they understand what's happening. But it's more than just the knowledge. You're actually there as an emotional support guide. You're helping to change their attitude overall. You've got to convince them that you're there uh, for their success. It's it's a process. This is part of the key overall. So when we think about the, the ERP, our new database system, we've gotta take people through this enormous cycle of being convinced it's a good thing, it's gonna benefit the institution, it's not gonna jeopardize their job, that it's uh, actually gonna make going to make their job easier overall, that we're all going to be successful and, oh by the way, we're going to be right there with you each step of the way, helping carry the load. Again, I think the key point is is that in, in IT, or at least from a IT perspective, and, and from a leadership perspective, change management is a, is a core competency of any leader.
1: When you think about performance measurement, I've heard a lot of different things about this. John Doerr is really a big proponent of goal setting and making them public to the company. So he really encourages everyone in an organization to come up with goals and to make them public to everyone else in the organization. And these goals are not to be used for compensation or promotion. simply to try to advance the organization. And so when, you know, he was an early investor in Google, Mm -hmm. and when he invested in Google, he was talking to the founders and some others, and they needed a way to manage, and he gave them his approach to management, which includes this. But to this day, everyone at Google writes down their goals and publishes it for everyone to see. And John DeWorth thinks that you should only accomplish maybe 75% of your goals. And everyone then sees it. So everyone sets their goals and then they reveal their results and then they move on. And it's been extremely effective for Google And it's been extremely effective for other companies that John Doerr has pushed this with. He doesn't claim to have invented it, but he's certainly been the biggest um, influencer Mm -hmm. for this approach because there's so many people now that use it, and it's almost like a a religion almost (laughs) to some people. What are your thoughts on performance
2: measurement, goal setting, those kinds of things? Well, let me talk in the large and then in the smaller and the specific. When I think about specific individuals or teams, I think in terms of having stretch goals or you know, very large goals, again, that may not necessarily be achieved. I remember when I went to college and I was vying for an ROTC scholarship and I did my interview, and they were asking me about how I approached my life, and I don't remember all of the answers, but I do remember that one of the comments that the interviewer mentioned, and he said, it's interesting, you, you set these very big goals, it sounds like you can never reach them. And he wasn't, he wasn't talking about super ambitious goals, he was talking about goals that were just a little bit beyond my grasp, if you will. And uh, and that struck me as something where, uh, you know, I think throughout my life I've always set performance goals that are a little bit beyond what I think is easily achievable. But I think that's reasonable for individuals and for teams overall. I think it's, it's what helps us produce more than we think we can. I always like to say I prefer to build overachieving teams. Uh, I want teams that that exceed my expectations, not that just simply meet my expectations, right? and I've been accused of setting really high standards along the way, but I think it's it's fun overall. L- let me tie that in just a little bit to leadership. So, Through multiple decades of research, a couple of gentlemen, Kuzis and Posner, they, they wrote the book The Leadership Challenge, and it's gone through now five or six different versions of it, and they publish some research inside of it on the different character traits, the top 20 character traits of successful leaders. And the top four perennially, for this entire time they've published their research, turn out to be four. Top four are consistent across all of these decades, right? Honesty typically comes out as number one. Forward thinking is number two, usually. Competence is number three. And the fourth is, is typically inspiring. And these are common traits. And then it goes down from there. The drop off between four and five is like 20 points. I mean, it's a huge gap, right? The top four are pretty close, and then it drops off dramatically below that. So how do I tie this into performance? Well, forward thinking and inspiring is about thinking further out. What you can see is typically what you can achieve. If you can see a little bit beyond that or you set something beyond that, then there's the question, can I achieve it, yes or no? I think this, is, this may be where it comes in with Google and others is, look, what, if we can see it, that means everybody else can see it. There's nothing special about that. If it's beyond what we can see, then we know we're breaking new ground overall. Right or we have the opportunity to break new ground. We may or may not achieve it, but let's go. You know, let's borrow this, let's borrow this Star Trek. Let's go where no man has gone before. Right, and so I could see where that's an important part of performance. And I, again, I think that's that's been inherent in, in how I've set my own goals overall. I haven't done it formally. I know that. Again, most people would see that for me as setting this really high standard of expectations. <laughs> it challenges people to think beyond their capabilities most people will set goals that are in line with what they think they can achieve and they don't know where their limits are well thank you so much
1: Chris this was excellent very interesting and uh, we're fortunate to have you as our chief financial officer
2: well thank you Matt John it's been a pleasure, a pleasure. To, to speak with you and, uh, I hope this is of value to, uh, to future generations <laughs>
0: Thank you for joining Leadership Web today. We hope that you found insight and guidance on leadership tools from this interview. Please join Leadership Web in two weeks as we explore another leader's leadership journey. Also, follow us on Instagram or LinkedIn by searching Leadership Web.